Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, postdoctoral fellow at Oxford University, James Orr, talks about the perceived conflict between science and religion, as well as his own personal story of realizing the game-changing truth of Jesus' existence. In your own story, in your own life, was was the idea of theist belief, God being a part of life, was that part of your growing up years? Not really. Um, my family were not atheists, but they educated me in a way that where religion played a relatively minor role in our lives. Um, it was partly a sort of quirk of, of my, my own autobiography. I was brought up in, in Brussels in Belgium, predominantly a Catholic country. So I was in a school that, where I was sort of the little Englishman in the corner, and so I was allowed, I think I was probably exempted from Catholic communion classes and so on. So I, I, I didn't really have that education growing up particularly until the age of nine or 10 when I was sent to a boarding school and then there it was pretty much chapel every day. And although we weren't taught religious studies or, or, the, or scripture or, or much philosophy as I, as I can re recall, there were certainly clearly highly educated teachers who did believe it, um, who, uh, who impressed me. That said, I think I must describe myself at school and throughout university as as an agnostic bordering on, on atheism. I think is I it something, is it something that you chose or just ignored? Mm. I would say it was part of the furniture of, 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 of what I believed about the world. I don't think I ever examined it very carefully. I do remember someone, I think my mother, handing me a copy of Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis and leaping at it, thinking I, there was a Narnia novel I'd missed. <laughs> and I thought, I've got to get, I just, I, I thought it all had all ended there at the last battle or whatever. And so I, I read that. I remember being struck by that book. And then I read May Christianity, A Problem of, Problem of Pain. I came to study Lewis's life quite carefully. Um, and, and I read a lot of Chesterton too. I suppose you might have said that I was intellectually attracted to Christianity, but I certainly wouldn't have described myself as a Christian or, or, or a theist in, in my school years, and certainly not in my, in, in my university years. I think that had a lot to do with the kind of lifestyle that university sort of opens up for you after sort of, what, I was 10, ten years pretty much in a boarding school by that point. And, uh, Christianity and the claims that it made on my life were, I suppose, a little bit threatening when I, when I came to, 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 to think about them. Several people tried to convert me when I was at Oxford. and um, we, I do remember reading the Gospel of Mark uh, in the Greek. I was studying Greek a lot at, at the time, of course, and I remember that made an impression on me. But for whatever reason, um, I, sent, I left Oxford and it wasn't really until, well, I, I would say as an agnostic or um, a, a, an atheist, I think. A, a athe Agnosticism and atheism, I mean, they're, they're just difficult, difficult terms. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. So what, what caused the kind of change? Because obviously you're in a, a very different place now yes. in, in the fact that this is absolutely. a very significant part of your life. Yeah, it is. Why absolutely. the shift? Well, the shift was existential, first and foremost. Uh, it wasn't driven by philosophy. It wasn't driven by um, reason to begin with, anyway. 
it was to do quite a sort of, a, well, a radically personal um, experience, a series of experiences that happened, they started to happen on the morning of New Year's Day, January 2000, and, uh, New, New Year's Day 2003. And these experiences, I, I mean, we, we don't have long enough to talk about them, but I could just summarize them as being experiences that were direct and very immediate and specific answers to prayers. Uh, skeptic, skeptical prayers, because I still hadn't really at all signed up to to Christian belief by that point. And I came to the view that although it was, that although the rational thing to do for each of these experiences was to say, you're going mad, <laughs> you know, just get with the program. There came a point around about mid-February after I'd suppose half a dozen, maybe a dozen of these, um, I'd, I'd undergone a dozen of these experiences, I realized that the cumulative weight of them was putting me in the position where it was actually irrational of me to deny that there was some kind of a pattern here. And that pushed me to read the New Testament. And specifically because I'd had this, um, this been given this gift of uh, Greek growing up at school and at university, and we studied it in the best place you could study it pretty much in the world, um, I found that uh, I, it was extraordinary being able to just read the Gospels, read Paul's letters in the originals, a bit like listening to Mozart play his own piano concertos. Uh, it was fantastic. And what I was able to do was to see that these documents weren't just the documents contained in that funny, dusty, leather-bound book in the pulpit in school chapel, but they were documents from exactly the same period that I'd spent the best, you know, the best part, better part of my life by that point, even at age 24, studying and evaluating as historical documents. And so I thought, well, the rational thing to do here is to assess them and evaluate them as I evaluated and assessed the ancient historians I studied at university. So James, in this particular point in your life, there's this two, it's kind of like a collision, isn't there? There's a collision between what you're experiencing mm but you haven't lost your kind of ability to ration or reason mm -hmm. your way mm -hmm. through. Yeah. So was it reading about the person of Jesus and what Paul said that mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. kind of helped reason and, and an emotional experience come together? Yes, I, th I, think, that's, I think that's fair. Um, reason was always first paramount for me, but the more I read of the New Testament, the less convinced I was that reason was something I had to park at the door. Um, I suppose I didn't come to the text thinking that that's what I needed to do. I just came to the text with a fairly unusual, the fairly unusual set of tools that I'd come upon, namely the ability to read the languages, the original Greek, and, and also to be able to apply the tools of assessing historical documents and, uh, and analyzing them. I think there was a great clarity to the New Testament, and I think there was a deep sense to me that what it was saying was true. Uh, and I think it's perfectly rational to believe someone who claims to be telling you the truth when there are no obvious reasons to suppose that they're not. Um, in fact, I think more than nine-tenths of what we come to know about the world is on the reliability of other people's testimony. Um, I've never been to Australia. 
I believe it exists. <laughs> I don't just believe it, I know it. I know Australia exists. I've never been there. And someone might say, you know, a hardcore scientistic person, that is to say someone who thinks that science is the be all and end all, will say, well, look, you haven't checked this out for yourself. I mean, have you seen Australia? Have you, have you examined it with a microscope? Have you seen all the, the, the tests and so on? And I say, well, no, that, that, that's what a crazy thing to think. No, I take it on testimony. I take it on the trust of my geography school teacher. And there's no reason that, you know, Miss Jackson would have been lying to me. <laughs> now, uh, most of our beliefs, most of our knowledge, we can call it knowledge because it's, it's their beliefs that, that are rational to hold, they're justified and they're true. It's knowledge. I can call that knowledge. I think most of our knowledge, the most of the knowledge that we have, that I have, that you have, comes from the reliability, from the testimony of reliable experts. And, and you reading the New Testament, reading about the person of Jesus, you're, you're, you've got to the point where you go, this is, this is reliable for you. Absolutely. I think that there's an, an inner credibility, an inner reliability to the message. But I think that there are also all sorts of ways in which you can go about assessing the reliability um, from outside uh, claims about the inner reliability of, of the message. So the message can ring true. And I think that's good enough to say that I believe it and I'm rational to believe it. And I think maybe I wouldn't go so far as to say like I know that it's true, but I know some sophisticated philosophers who would say that's good enough for knowledge. Yeah. What difference did it make personally? So here you are wrestling with an experience and, mm. and mm. reason. But yeah. So for you personally? For me personally, it made an enormous difference. Um, it changed my life in, in lots of ways. I think the crucial factor for me was joining a church that showed me what Christian community looked like. Uh, I'd not had that at university, or at least I hadn't glimpsed the opportunity for that. I now know that it was there, but I was looking in the wrong places or not looking at all. Um, I think that was crucial because I was spending, you know, once a week, an evening once a week or once a fortnight with people who were doing, by and large, what I was doing, you know, working in, working in office jobs, long hours, um, facing the same challenges, the same sort of experiencing the same joys and saying, well, look, this is a very, you know, normal way of living one's life, but there's something radical and distinctive about it too. Um, so yeah, I, you know, that, that the personal shift, the, the quality of friendship uh, and relationship that I saw, look, it's not that atheists can't be good friends to each other. And, uh, that, that, that's obviously not, not the case, but there was something that I couldn't quite put my finger on that was different uh, about the friendships that I saw within the Christian community. Uh, I mean, one example of this, I mean, one thing that I realized within about a year was that the friends that I was forming in the church, firstly, were sort of people I would never normally have been friends with before. And secondly, within about a year or two, I considered them to be as close, if not closer, than friends that I'd grown up with since I was a schoolboy. Now, yes, of course, you know, part of the strength of the friendship was sustained by the fact that we were committed to a set of beliefs and practices that were, are becoming pretty unusual in modern day Britain, modern day post-Christian or secular Britain. Um, but I don't think that explains all of it. It doesn't quite, didn't 
it didn't quite ring true to me as an explanation of why it is that these were such good friends. I, I, um, so yeah, on the personal front, that was, it was crucial. If it, if it hadn't been for that, then I think I would have had a, a conversion of the mind, perhaps. I would have been a, I suppose, uh, a nominal Christian, though, when it came to living out and practicing the beliefs that, that, that I'd accepted intellectually. So James, you talked about having these experiences where you had to put it down to something beyond mm-hmm. normal. You've, mm-hmm. you've, you've read the Bible mm-hmm. and you've come to the point that this is true mm-hmm. and you're, you're building relationships within the church mm-hmm. that's working for you. Mm-hmm. What's the, the whole idea about you're in an intellectual setting, mm-hmm. you're taken seriously as, a, as an academic. Mm-hmm. So choosing to, to follow Jesus, mm. how does that look? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the point at which I came to follow Jesus the point at which I came to see myself as, as a Christian, um, I wasn't in an academic setting. I was in, I suppose, at the professional setting of corporate law um, a few years before the, the, the financial crisis. And, you know, that's a world that's just as hostile in its own way to religious belief uh, and certainly, you know, living out the Christian life as, as academia, um, as the academic world is. Um, I was confronted so early on in, in my research and in my, in my then very amateurish research as I was trying to make sense of the experiences that I was undergoing, um, confronted so early on by the extraordinary sophistication of the Christian worldview that it never really crossed my mind that this was some kind of intellectual suicide. Um, you know, that was never just just never a struggle that I underwent. Of course, it was a criticism and an objection that I came up against. Uh, generally speaking, I suppose here in Britain, you know, that, that objection was beginning to be made with increasing stridency and force in the wake of the publication of Richard Dawkins's The God Delusion in 2006. That intellectual, the idea that religious belief was a form of intellectual suicide was something that I came to as a, an objection presented by other people. It just, it, it never even crossed my mind to think that this was what, I, what was going on. Quite the reverse. I explained before that the process by which I came to, to believe that Christianity was true was, if not wholly, at least very, very importantly dependent upon making very careful inquiries into, say, the historicity of the New Testament documents. Um, and um, that process of evaluation and weighing up was, I mean, if, if that wasn't a rational exercise, I, I just wouldn't know. I, I don't think we would be, you know, just wouldn't understand what a rational exercise would be. Yeah, so, um, so you end up, though, with the, you know, whether it's uh, Richard Dawkins or many others in, in this kind of world that you mm. uh, deal with on a mm. regular basis, why do you think they've got to the point where they say there's no possibility of a divine influence on our world? It's an interesting question. As far as Dawkins himself is concerned, it's interesting that he titles the chapters of, one of the chapters of The God Delusion, why there almost certainly is no God. Uh, Dawkins is very clear that he's not willing to claim that he knows that there's definitely no God. 
Um, and in the bus campaign in London that he famously supported in, I think this was 2007, 2008, there was a big campaign on all the, these buses in London saying, um, there's almost certainly no God, or there's probably no God, I think it was, so stop worrying and enjoy life. Um, well, my view was that, well, my view is that, that, that that's just not atheism, that's agnosticism. Um, and so, but there are new atheists who are, who are, who are more confident than Dawkins that, that, that they can say that they know that there definitely is no God. Um, what are the reasons for that? Well, they're sociological. I don't doubt that a lot of it had to do with the cultural and social fallout and attempt to come to terms with the events of 9-11 and everything that came after that, um, a sense of um, not just revulsion against Islamism, um, but an inability to distinguish between Islamism and Islam, not just a revulsion against the so-called crusade that, that Bush then launched against, against Afghanistan in October 2001 and then Iraq in March 2003, um, but the failure to just be able to distinguish between what is quite clearly not uh, a, a Christian uh, approach to, to foreign policy making and Christianity as, as, as it is. Um, so there's a lot of, um, and, and I think there's just a lot of ignorance out there. Um, it's not culpable ignorance. It's not that you know, people can be, should be blamed for not being literate in religious questions. It's just that the framework isn't really there in our institutions of higher education and our schools for um, you know, explaining why faiths can be rationally adhered to. Um, there's this idea that faith is to be opposed to reason. And that's a very strange way of thinking about things. The proper opposition to faith, it seems to me, is knowledge. Um, we can have faith that something that is true, we can have faith in somebody for their trustworthiness, and part of what that means is we're taking a risk there. Um, it doesn't mean that it's an irrational risk, it simply means that it falls short of the kind of um, proof that you might like to find in a mathematical theorem. Mm. Um, but that way of thinking about the world is not distinctive to religious belief. Um, it's something that actually characterizes most of our beliefs about the world. Most of our beliefs about the world fall short of the level of proof that a mathematician is going to want to see in a formula. I believe that you exist. I believe you have a mind. I believe that the world wasn't made up five minutes ago with the illusion of age and that we're just being manipulated by clever scientists in, with our brains in a vat, as it were. I mean, those are, those are all beliefs that I can't prove to you. I can't prove to you. The skeptic's always going to be able to turn around and say, well, yeah, you, you think you've proven it to me, but actually the scientist was just fooling with your brain to make you think, make you think that you could successfully show that the external world exists. And, and, and there you simply say, well, look, um, I don't care. The burden of proof is on your shoulders, not mine. Um, my belief that you have a mind, that the world wasn't made up five minutes ago with the appearance of age, that we're not brains in a vat, is a rational belief. And it's not any less rational um, for not being able, for uh, being unprovable to the degree 
that would satisfy a mathematician. So James, I want to just explore a bit more about the whole science question. Mm. Someone in that world, because most mm. people will be listening to you saying, well, I've, I've never been to Cambridge, I've never been to Oxford, I've never studied mm. science. How do I respond to my scientist's friend that mm. says, well, I'm a scientist, I can't believe? Yeah. One way to respond is to um, challenge the assumption that um, in order to understand science's role within human inquiry, um, you have to have got a Nobel Prize <laughs> or even done an exam in science. I mean, that seems to beg the question. That is to say, it seems to beg the question in favor of those who say that uh, science is just all about expertise in a particular realm that applies to every other, every other realm. Um, I have done a little bit of work in the philosophy of science, um, but I'm not a scientist. I mean, I don't have great scientific qualifications, and I don't feel I need them to reach the view that there are certain clear limits to the scope of what science can tell us about the world. Um, as soon as one's talking about those questions, about where the frontiers of scientific inquiry might might, might be, be fixed, you need to bring in, as soon as you're there, you're, you're, you're doing philosophy uh, because you're starting to reflect, as it were, in a meta-scientific way about what, there might, what, what features of the world there might be that resist explanation, satisfactory explanation in scientific terms. Um, so for example, I know that two plus two equals four and I'm pretty sure that's not a scientific claim. I believe it's true. So I know there's at least one truth, actually infinite truths, <laughs> infinite truths, two plus two equals four, two plus three equals five, that can't be justified or shown to be true or shown to be true by virtue of scientific inquiry. Um, so, you know, to those who are worried by uh, scientist friends who say, I'm a scientist, I can't, I can't believe that, 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 that religion is true, I'd simply to say, well, you know, where do you think the, the conflict lies? Um, and certainly there have been some flashpoints in, in, in the history of the West in the last 200 years, 250 years or so, that people like to, you know, at the kind of cultural level, people like to invoke. Uh, but generally speaking, it's bad history. Um, and if you think that religion and science are on a kind of collision course, uh, there are religious people who think that, and there are scientistic people who think that. Well, I'd say it's bad religion, and it's worse science. You're saying that to pursue faith doesn't mean that you give up reason. Because the, there's that, that whole kind of tension saying that I, I choose science, I choose, I choose reason versus yes. I choose faith. Yeah. You're, you're suggesting they're, they're actually, they actually run parallel. They, they, they're not at odds. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say there's a whole load of domains of human inquiry that are obviously rational, but are also obviously not scientific uh, and are not less rational or less interesting or less worthy of pursuing uh, for that reason. Um, literary criticism, you know, 
I think you can do really good, interesting, insightful literary criticism. A lot of my colleagues do. History. Uh, I think you can do really good history. Do really good history of science. That's not scientific. It's, they're not scientific truths. They don't invoke the methods of, 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 of modern science. Uh, and they don't need to. Uh, and they're not, the conclusions they reach are, are, are no less true for that. Um, the, the limits and the scope of science are not questions that can be decided beforehand by invoking only scientific mm. uh, claims. Uh, you're, as, as soon as you're talking about the frontiers, you have to be talking about what might or might not lie beyond the frontiers. And precisely because you're talking about what might or whether what lies beyond the frontiers might or might not be scientific, you can't be having, a, you're, by definition, you're not having a scientific discussion. Uh, it'd be bad science to do that. It'd be bad philosophy to do it too. One of our themes around this series is that, that Jesus is a game changer. Mm. That the person of Jesus changed human history. And, and you've reflected on, on the Greek philosophers mm -hmm. and, and obviously understand the world that we now in, live in. How do you see or what do you see that Jesus changed most mm. in his life and teaching? Right. Well, that's, uh, that's a big question. Um, and one way of approaching an answer to it would be to say, well, suppose, as some you know, really sort of crazy outlandish historians have said, that there was never such a figure, that it was all made up. And you know, take Jesus out of the equation of the development of, 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 of uh, human history in the last uh, 2,000 years. What would the world be like now? Or what would the world have been like in 100 AD or 200 AD or 400 AD? Well, I don't know any historian um, confessing secular who would uh, think that the world would have developed in pretty much the same way. Um, Jesus brings about a revolution in human thought, in human moral practices. Um, he brought about the view that every human being is loved by God and is therefore of infinite worth, and that therefore all human beings are equal. Now that view seems to us so trite and obvious as to not even be worth paying attention to. But one's got to remember that that statement, that that sort of view was being introduced to a world that, where it was the natural order of things, for example, that you'd have a complete distinction between free and slave, that the free citizen and his or her slave. I mean, slaves were, strictly speaking, chattel, material property. Jesus brings about this universalism, the universalism that is the hallmark of all human rights thinking today. That's not to say that there weren't other belief systems that thought something similar. Stoicism, for example, was a system of thought that took very seriously the idea that human beings um, were equal, had a, a, a degree of dignity. Um, but uh, generally speaking, that set of beliefs was not really what um, that died out pretty quickly, I think, around about 
second or third century, Stoicism is, is, is ceasing to have, it's not disappearing, but it's ceasing to have the grip on the ancient imagination that, that, that it used to have. Um, partly, I think, because there was a degree of detachment to the Stoic outlook that there really wasn't with the Christian outlook. Um, the Stoics didn't build hospitals. They might have believed in the universal dignity of human beings, but they didn't build hospitals, they didn't develop universities, they didn't have this radical approach to the poor and the dispossessed. There's a wonderful letter from the Emperor uh, Justin, who I think, Justin, uh, no, I'm so sorry, Julian, the Emperor Julian the Apostate, who was around emperor for two brief years, I think 348 to 350 or so, and just very shortly after Constantine had so-called converted, formally converted the empire to Christianity. And he was so-called called the apostate because he tried to pull things back to the pagan past. And we have this letter where he writes to one of his officials saying, look, you've got to, st the terrible plagues are afflicting Rome. And he said, you've got to start helping people who are not Roman citizens. There are these Christians who go and help and go out and work with plague victims, even though they are not Christians themselves. And this, this is an extraordinary and very puzzling kind of behavior. Why would you go and help those who are not your own? The central ethical principle of certainly Greek culture and I think Roman culture was to do good to your friends and harm your enemies. That's really the principle. In fact, I think there was a, a very famous Oxford classicist called Kenneth Dover, who I think wrote a book called Helping Friends, Harming Enemies. And, and in, in many ways, that sums up the ethical outlook of, of, of the ancient world. That's not to say that they all thought that, as I said, the Stoics cut against the grain a little bit, but they didn't practice it in a way that brought about the sorts of revolutions at the social, social level. Right. It's, it's, yeah. It is interesting, isn't it, that, that it, it, it would seem in what you're saying there that yeah. it's more than just an intellectual concept. There's, there's almost some sort of heart attitude, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, if you look at the, those early years, if you look for, uh, by, by which I mean, say, 33 AD to, let's say, 200 AD, um, you know, what, what was going on, I think, was that Christianity was spreading with astonishing rapidity uh, throughout, around the Mediterranean basin. The, the, this movement spreads in a way that is blind to class distinctions, blind to gender distinctions, blind to distinctions between slave and free. We see that in the letter of Paul's letter to, to Philemon, for example, and, uh, and elsewhere. And so, and these are not primarily, uh, it's not, that is to say, it's not a system of belief that's, you know, becoming an intellectual fashion uh, that people like to talk about and discuss in, you know, the salons of Alexandria and Rome and Athens. This is going out into parts of the world that were just never, you know, that didn't, didn't engage, that were basic, effectively illiterate. Um, now, it was predominantly an urban movement, but it reached parts of the countryside too. And it, I get the feeling from reading the great apologists, for example, of the second century AD, the great defenders of the Christian faith, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, um, uh, Justin, Tertullian, you know, they are very sophisticated thinkers, but you get the impression that 
Christianity has got a, a grip of large chunks of the civilization around the Mediterranean basin, basin in a very practical way. And that what's going on is, is, is a sort of intellectual uh, reflection on what's happened. Like, how can we, how can we make sense of this? Uh, you live your lives this way, but, but what's the sort of rational, intellectual, philosophical underpinning for this? And so these figures step forward and say, well, actually, here's one way we could think about it. So it's not primarily a, an intellectual movement to begin with. I think that starts to happen very quickly. Um, and it's not to say that Paul's letters are not, are not themselves very um, sophisticated and reflected, reflective documents, but they're, they're intensely practical. Um, philosophy was, generally speaking, a, a very practical guide to life um, in, in the ancient world. Um, so it began, those, those, the work that those apologists did in the second century gave rise in the end to some titanic figures. Um, I think, you know, m most important of all, Augustine of, of Hippo, who's born around about 356 AD, dies in, in 430. I mean, Augustine's a really interesting figure because he goes through all the options. You know, he, he tries to be a Manichaean, he tries to be a so-called Neoplatonist, and they just don't, they don't work, they don't cut it for him. He has this extraordinary conversion experience, perhaps the most famous conversion experience in the history of any religion, in a garden in Milan. And it's, as it were, a miraculous moment. It's not primarily an intellectual, reflective moment. He hears a child. It's interesting that it's a child. Say, tole lege, take up and read. Takes up the New Testament and reads it. And then there's this extraordinary uh, moment where he comes to think, believe that it's true, and then dedicates the rest of his life to writing uh, libraries, I mean, millions and millions of words reflecting upon the intellectual strength and quality of, of this way of life. But that's not what came first. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.